Welcome to the Why on Earth Community Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry, and today we're in the San Luis Valley of Colorado visiting with Nick Chambers. Hi, Nick. Hi, Aaron. How are you? Good to see you, buddy. You too, man. This is going to be a lot of fun. Now, I may as well dispense with a very important uh, fact about this particular episode, which is that Nick and I have been best buddies going clear back to high school, and we actually met in middle school. Uh, played some music together, had a lot of fun over the years, and uh, it's actually a, a, a real joy and honor for me to be able to do this episode to discuss a lot of the great work, Nick, that you've been doing in the sustainability movement, both as uh, somebody demonstrating what can be done with homesteading and also as an educator teaching folks all kinds of appropriate technology solutions. Yeah. It's going to be a lot of fun. Good deal. Nick Chambers is the founder of Living Arts Systems. He has worked in small farming, homesteading, and renewable energy innovations, education and service, and installations for the last 20 years. For the past nine years, he has worked in the Colorado local food movement, specifically in food distribution. He currently serves as the founding general manager for the Valley Roots Food Hub, a statewide distributor and aggregator specializing in source-identified and regeneratively grown produce, meat, dairy, and value-added food products. Nick is based in the San Luis Valley of Colorado, where his beloved homestead, Choke Cherry Farm, is situated in the small hamlet of Crestone, and where the seedbed for Nick, oh, excuse me, and where the Valley Roots Food Hub is based in Mosca, the potato and quinoa capital of North America. Crestone has been a verdant seedbed for Nick to put his deep permaculture and live-or-die renewable energy to practice. Anaerobic digestion treats wastewater and produces cooking gas. Solar hot water runs residences and commercial kitchen. And wood stove thermosiphon hot water provides domestic hot water backup. We'll be showing you some of this. We'll be talking through some of this. Those were a a number of... uh, terms and concepts that may not be immediately familiar to everybody, so we'll get to that. Thankfully, his family has been willing to check the temperature of the water before a shower. And if it's been cloudy, a fire needs to be lit. (laughs) Much of the work Nick employs comes out of feasibility studies, mentorships, and solar installations done throughout the valley, as well as serving as adjunct faculty at Santa Fe Community College's Biofuels Department. Planned for 2021 is a commercial venture in Moscow where various renewable technologies will be working in concert to produce value-added agricultural products in a renewable energy park setting. Nick also enjoys supporting his kids as they embark on college and beyond, rambling through the wilderness and playing music. So Nick, uh, it's so fun to have you on, yeah. on the podcast. I'm thrilled to chat with you. And, and we're sitting here, uh, standing actually here in a greenhouse uh, that that you uh, built uh, a few years back that has some very interesting properties, characteristics, and technology in it. But b- before we get to that, I want to just say that, uh, you know, this is a very special property that you've been stewarding for many years now. And uh, right over yonder, a few paces, is where you and Alicia got married. Yeah. Uh, we've had some beautiful times here over the years as friends and uh, some of those times have been with our younger children running around. And so uh, I just wanted to start by asking, how the heck did you get into this homesteading thing 
so long ago when uh, really it, it wasn't something many in our generation were really even thinking much about yet. Yeah. Well, Aaron, um, you know, you might be a co-conspirator to some of this business. <laughs> um, you know, studying anthropology in college and being in touch with just cultural diversity and different ways of living certainly inspired it. And then growing up, you know, we were we were hitting it hard with like, there's got to be a way, there's a greener way, something's not right, there's, there's something amiss here. And we were deeply uh, inspired by wilderness and that was our thing, you know. And so when we got out into the world to, you know, make our own choices and make our own path, um, you know, for me at least, you know, I was kind of, um, had a proclivity for the canvas living environments, teepees. Um, my brother growing up uh, would go stay with him near Durango. And then in college, it was just like, man, I'm going to save money. I'm going to go live in the wilderness. I'm going to get myself a teepee and just have my own thing. And that was that was some of the most enlightening years I've ever had. And um, it was super awesome. And then you bind me uh, Bill Mollison's Permaculture One book, uh-huh. the big, thick, <laughs> the hardback, yeah. the Bible. <laughs> and there was so much during those years. We were creative. We were thrifty. We were full of resources. Um and uh, it was like, let's put permaculture to practice and just do the stuff. Um, so with landing here, it was a, it was really a blessing. After working on several farms, biodynamic farms in Canada, uh, working in the biodiesel sector, trying to like you know solve the transportation issue for our families, you know, at Crestone, um, we ended up coming here because it seemed like it's such a great place to practice permaculture on a community-wide scale. You know, a community of a thousand people, pretty alternative, very globally minded as far as a lot of cultural influence with uh, different spiritual communities. And then everyone was an older builder. Everyone was building their own house. Straw bale was huge, adobe. There's no structural building codes here, so it allows a lot of freedom and flexibility to design the, the things that we want to live in. Um, so, you know, garnering all those skills. Uh, and then this particular piece of land we eyeballed for four years. I was writing letters. Uh, every couple months, I was calling every couple months for four years straight because we just felt like it was here or we were going to British Columbia, back to that biodynamic farm community we were at. And then after four years, it, uh, everything came together. We invested out in the Baca, which is where most people live in Crestone. And, um, you know, one thing led to another and all the pieces fell together. And uh, so we were able to hit this land, which is an old homestead from 1916. Uh, had a one cubic foot per second ditch they put in right around that time. Um, you know, had animals, so you can clearly see where 100 years of animals were, 75 or whatever, um, based upon the soil. And just like there's grass here. Well, an acre of grass. We don't have a lot of grass. Um, so it was a real gem, and we felt like we could do a little permaculture, small farming thing here. And we did for many years. And um, we had interns and woofers from around the world, you know, from... Woofing is the, uh, what, what does that stand for again? Uh, willing Workers on Organic Farms. And it's, it's a way for folks to travel and visit and work on farms yeah. in exchange for room and board often. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we had cool, we had a, you know, a carpenter from Austria, suit mad skills, but 18 and just looking to cut his teeth on something else. And, um, you know, a welder from uh, Quebec, French speaking... Um, so yeah, good international. Then we had kids from New Hampshire that rode his bicycle out here and he stayed with us a couple summers. So we had a lot of good, uh, community times and, and building and putting this, uh, old cabin back together and 
doing a lot of this type of work. And, you know, they were all game. They were like, well, what, what we want to do is, you know, we're, we're going to do humanuring. That's what we got right now. But we're working towards creating methane off our, um, you know, septic system stuff. And they were like, hey, yeah, sounds good to me. Yeah, fabulous. <laughs> so, you know, we, we laid a lot of stones over the years. And it's just been a slow process, very much hand to mouth. Mm. Um, and just, you know, going and working a little bit, working here. And um, we did a CSA for many, many That's years. a community-supported agriculture model where right. folks buy shares early in the season, springtime, and then get uh, periodic uh, food deliveries or pickups, usually weekly. Is that yeah, what you guys do? Yeah, weekly, you know, food basket of yeah. just whatever's coming out of the garden. Yeah. Um, and that went good for a while. And um, so, yeah. More or less brings us. This is great. So you, you mentioned human. There are a couple of things you just shared that uh, I want to circle back on and uh, kind of tease those threads through the tapestry a little bit. You mentioned humanure. Uh, that may be a concept some of you are familiar with, I would imagine, but not necessarily everybody. And uh, there's a great book called The Humanure Handbook. Yeah. Um, that uh, this is this is helps us in a spiritual way to get in touch with our turd eye if uh, you need to do that kind of thing. <laughs> but uh, tell us tell us what is humanure and you know of course with your anthropology background you've got this very interesting lens and perspective on uh, the the real aberrations that are modern Western American consumer culture um, and so humanure is something that goes way back in time right yeah. I mean, yeah, as long as we've been going or, you know, collectively as a when we wanted to deal with our byproduct in a, you know, responsible um, soil producing way. Uh, yeah, I don't know how many years, but of composting human manure is all we're talking about. Yeah. Um, a shout out to Joseph Jenkins, the author of that. I met him once at a um, bio uh, cycle conference. Yeah. You know, bio cycle is a huge industry related around composting and anaerobic digestion and all this stuff. And so high big dollars, big industry and highfalutin, you know, uh, governments and big corporations sure, yes. and all that type of Some stuff. Some of the largest corporations in the world are, are doing big money because yeah. it's municipal wastewater treatment. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, you know, municipal composting. And here's Joseph Jenkins getting up there and he says, this will call you, cost you about $3 and 50 cents. And it's a five gallon bucket <laughs> and sawdust and wood chips. And here's the process. Here's the data. You know, all uh, biological uh, organisms can get killed that you don't want, pathogens. Uh, it's a proven process. It's all there. And it's just really astounded and confounded this community of big money and big industry with such a simple, simple way. And that's basically composting our stuff. And, you know, it's, it's a hard concept for some people. I think as a culture, we're fecophobic. Yeah. And so it's like we, we don't want to deal with it. We don't want to talk about it. We want to flush it down and, yeah. and do it. And so... We kind of, you know, that seemed to work really well for our lifestyle, um, and it did, except your sister and your mom may not want to come stay with you. <laughs> so therein lies yeah. the rub. And so in order to, you know, create a, a situation where you want to have your family come and stay with you that need uh, plumbing and flushing toilets, uh, the solution was an anaerobic digestion system. So it could be a supercharged wastewater system that can provide not only methane gas for energy and cooking, but also treat the wastewater more effectively than septic systems or more effectively than traditional wastewater treatment. Um, so that's the path we've been on there. Yeah. Yeah. Great. And uh, what, do we, what do we have going on in this greenhouse structure? 
So this is um, a supercharged septic system or a biogas digester, yeah. anaerobic digestion, all, all pretty much the same thing. And instead of, uh, you know, when you flush the toilet in most cities, it goes more than times than not, it goes to an aerobic treatment system. So it's using air and energy um, to blow air into the water and let the microorganisms, that are aerobic microorganisms, do the breakdown of the organic material. Um, anaerobic is certainly just shutting everything off, letting it be no oxygen, dark. And these are, um, you know, out of the five kingdoms of life, uh, archaea are some of the oldest. Um, and they're close. Archaea are the organisms that yield methane in their metabolism. Mm -hmm. um, so they're the ones responsible for the methane digestion and treatment. Um, they're closer related to plants and animals than they are bacteria, which interesting. is very interesting. Um, Anyhow, so uh, there's no oxygen, so it's an aerobic environment. Uh, you get these thermophiles of uh, archaea that do the work, and it's a passive system. You know, it's proven 99% pathogen death. Um, and then what comes out the other end, um, you can pay your bills on the nutrient value of the wastewater as opposed to, again, treating it like a waste product that needs to be disposed of. Um, so it's funny the way uh, how our society has artificially priced energy where the methane gas that we make off the system is really fun and it's great to torch and use um, but actually penny for penny it's much less valuable than the nutrient value of the wastewater that's going through um, and whether uh, we're at a place to effectively utilize that um, i'm not quite sure uh, again it has a fecophobic thing going but Again, this is big stuff. Like this is on a real small scale, farm scale. Yeah. Uh, Denver Metro wastewater is anaerobic. Santa Fe, Albuquerque, and numerous other ones are big scale, and they're creating four megawatts of electricity off the methane um, while you know treating some of the um, solids and things like that. So this is a very small scale. Um, this is a Chinese style. Uh, yeah. I did a training in China with a company. Um, so they're, they're it's called a fixed dome hydraulic pressure yeah um and that's just the way that the gas is created under these fiberglass domes um so if this is handy you have your sort of tank so we're standing on one right now yeah you have this big stomach and as the natural anaerobic process goes on it's releasing bubbles that get trapped in this fiberglass dome up here and then it's all sealed and fixed so what happens is the water level, as you start catching gas, the water level starts rising up above that dome. And then therefore you have pressure. Now, when you open a valve on that gas bubble, it, uh, you know, that water wants to push it out. So it's this beautifully pressurized passive, passive um, system. Very cool. Um, and this, so these are um, the, the vessels the tanks themselves are concrete right and, yeah. and you you poured them here didn't you? yeah cast, cast in place. place so that it's a great solution for the homestead scale the small farm scale yeah that's great and what else can you put in here beside whatever's flown out of the out of the toilets yeah i mean um we have a little smoothie maker there which is just a big blender <laughs> yeah um so all your kitchen scraps goes in there i mean we'll put down 50 50 pounds of old potatoes will grind up and pour in there. Yeah. Um, so pretty much anything, um, you know, nutshells, like we were talking, avocado pits, mango pits, those just, A, they're not a lot of biodegradable yeah. um, sort of volatiles, that yeah. they call it. 
Um, and then it can get caught in pumps and things. Little, like almost a little more of the hard kind of woody uh, yeah. organic debris you try to keep out. Right. This is not, you know, for wood chips or, uh, you know, high carbon materials. We need want a 30 to 1 carbon nitrogen ratio to stuff we're putting in here. But most manures are great. Um, but And, if, you know, manures have already been digested once. So they've got less energy to give up as far as gas production than food scraps. So food scraps are super hot. Yeah. And then oils and sugars and flours and carbohydrates and all that stuff is, is really fantastic. Yeah. Um, so we're talking, again, on a municipal scale, megawatts of, sure. of energy coming off. And, um, yeah, one of my rules of thumb, if you're making 4 megawatts of electricity, that means you're making 12 megawatts of total energy because there's all the heat coming off those generators, which is a big one. Um, so That's very interesting. So essentially we're only... Uh, doing about a 25% efficiency yield with our industrial electricity production with these systems. Yeah, because they're essentially running on big engines, and engines are only, just like in your car, really only transferring about 20-25% of yeah. the value of the fuel into motive power. The rest of it's heat that in a car, you know, gets wasted through your radiator or blows in your yeah. cab or... Yeah. Whatever. But it's interesting a way to kind of recalibrate what we're talking about. And the only reason this happens is because energy is priced so low mm. artificially from the petroleum legacy that we're on. Yeah. And so we can afford to do that. We can get by with 25% efficiency. But it's horrendous, I think, really. Especially when you start making your own fuel. Sure. Then it's like every ounce is so precious. Yeah. And you, you want the most bang for the buck because... When you use it up, it's gone, and then you have to wait till it makes more. Yeah. yeah. Um, so being staggered in your demands and, and appropriately uh, designed yeah. is important. Yeah. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Well, I'm, I'm curious uh, to ask you also, Nick, uh, you, before getting into the homesteading that you've been doing now for many years, uh, you, as you mentioned earlier, you were living in a, a teepee, and you call it the canvas lifestyle. And uh, I remember visiting you when you were in college studying up in Montana in the depths of winter and uh, coming to stay with you for a few days. We had a lot of fun. And, of course, that wood stove in there uh, made all the difference, right? Yeah. And uh, it felt great when we were uh, enjoying our time together in the evening, uh, kept that thing rolling. And then we'd go to bed and wake up in the morning and it would be pretty darn cold until it got fired back up again, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a that's a kind of rugged lifestyle. I know a lot of our forebears, our ancestors would have been familiar with, but not a lot of our peers have uh, experienced that, yeah. and certainly not for the number of years you did it. Yeah. I'd love to hear you tell us a bit about how living such a simple style, like in a way you're a modern-day Thoreau, uh, how that has changed your trajectory uh, professionally and, and how that has cause you to perhaps think about life, day-to-day -day life, and, and, and the world a bit differently? Yeah. Um, I don't know. For me, it was a good match. You know, growing up, certainly, we were white suburban boys growing up outside of Denver. Um, you know, we weren't necessarily wanting for much uh, as far as shelter or food. And, um, but yet we knew that something was amiss, I think, in the larger society. So I don't know. For me, it was just a match. And again, my brother had... Um, provided some exposure to that lifestyle and and then studying just yeah um, different ways of living throughout the world it was like damn there's so many different ways and 
you know, I mean, we would go light a fire in the wilderness for fun. And I was like, well, what if we just live that way? Yeah. <laughs> and so it was just a great match. And again, it was thrifty. I was, I worked two jobs and saved a whole ton because one place was a hundred bucks a month and a little work trade and the other place was free. Um, and so that was just a great fit for a thrifty college dude. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think being young helps too, because I was hungry for it, and the cold I, it doesn't bother you as much as when you're younger. <laughs> uh, so I'm a little more sensitive now. Yeah, me too. But uh, yeah, just letting the fire go out and firing it up, and you know it heats up quick. Yeah. Quick release fires become a, a good skill. Um, I don't know. I think domestically, it's certainly influenced. Like, oh, well, what is it that you want next? And it's just well, hot water. Well, it's like, oh, well, you can't have hot water till you have freeze-proof conditions. Yeah. So then, you know, just segued into, like, when we were going to build, what is it going to be? It's going to be round, and it's going to, because it, I love the round living, you know, with the teepee. And, um, you know, such a small place, too, that's easy to clean, it's easy to heat, and all that stuff. Um, so frost-free round, and that's what we ended up doing here with the straw bale yurt thing. Yeah. Um, and I think just being in touch with resources, wood, um, water, hauling water, you know, you get real thankful for that five gallon jug and, um, you know, at various places I would fill up at a convenience store or I would have to dip the jug in the creek or any number of, I mean, keeping the hole in the creek, this is in here in Crestone out in the Baca, we would uh, keep a hole open all winter long in the, in the ice, ice yeah. and it would, you know, the creeks get like a glacier it freezes up and then more water flows on top and it just gets layer and layers so you have this three foot hole down to the water and you just keep it open all winter and god that's good it's good living um but yeah i think just being in touch with your resources uh, water energy yeah. all of it you know and a little solar panel for music is all we needed back then yeah um we could have charged our phones but we didn't have phones back then right <laughs> a little pre pre uh, smartphone era yeah it was yeah um yeah you're more in touch with the fundamentals right and uh it strikes me also that whenever i was visiting you over the years we spent a whole lot of time outside yeah. in general and it seems to me growing up in the suburbs as we did probably one of the things that kind of ached in my soul was that we we had you know in in many ways it was a, a very privileged and wonderful way to grow up but also had this kind of disconnection from nature mm -hmm. and you see in a lot of the developments out there uh, squeezing as much square footage of a house on on a relatively small piece of property and our lifestyle has become such that we've really kind of lost that connection with the outside with the nature with the gardens with the birds i hear them sing, mm -hmm. singing right now and so in a, in a strange way nick you've been living this very humble thrifty frugal lifestyle and i consider you one of my wealthiest friends and colleagues uh, knowing that you've got this relationship with landscape and water and wilderness and animals and all of the flowing elements right and my gosh you can't buy that yeah yeah i mean we are we count our blessings being here and being able to have the space and the wilderness and the sort of the peace of space like to call it yeah um and it's not for everyone yeah. um i certainly live in this way or living in such a rural place um it's not for everyone but i sure enjoy it and we, we get by okay <laughs> yeah yeah well and all the the work you're doing with the food hub yeah. keeps you really connected to all kinds of 
farmers, growers, food, uh, artisan food manufacturers and eaters of, of all sorts throughout yeah. these many, you know, hundreds of square miles around this region. And, uh, maybe when we uh, show folks into the commercial kitchen over here where some of this biogas is feeding the uh, stove, we'll, we'll fire some flame up there too. We can chat a bit more about what you're doing with food. Yeah. And just uh, to let you guys know, we're, we're here in the greenhouse. We're going to, are we going to flare some gas here? Um, it looks like we're a little outside? frozen and cold okay. at the minute. Okay. Um, and then we're going to go look at the commercial kitchen with some beautiful timber framing, uh, straw bale um, building uh, techniques on display there. And then finally for crescendo, we'll go up to the amazing uh, home that Nick has just referenced uh, that he built over the years with his wife, Alicia, and uh, check that out. So uh, let me just think, is there anything else, Nick, we want to mention in here before we move to that next spot? Yeah, yeah um, I don't know if you want to get a video, but essentially we're on three, there's three discs here, three tanks. The middle one is really the digester active, and the other ones just have gas holders in. So I mentioned that fiberglass dome. Yeah. And then they're all tied together. So even though the gas is only being created in this one, yeah. they're distributed across all three. So it triples our gas storage capacity. Okay. Um, which I think is key, again, because we're making this every day and there's times of big usage and then times of not usage. So having a storage capacity is important. Well, are you thinking, like, do you want to lift the lid and just show folks what it looks like or is it not really something we can capture on camera that way? Well, let's see what we got here. <coughs> I don't know. It's pretty raunchy. Yeah, good thing we can't smell on camera. Oh, it's not smelling. <laughs> it's a sweet swamp smell. So you can see these circles around a bit yeah. here and the one in the background there. And then you got your, this is a hydrogen sulfide scrubber just to scrub out the, uh, the eggy hydrogen sulfide smell. And then a dehydrator, because it's obviously coming out of water. So it's a wet gas and we want to dry it out. And then just a meter. And then it, um, the, the hydraulic pressure that I mentioned pushes it to all its places. So this is commercial kitchen, this is a house, and this is in here. Um, and that's it. It's pretty yeah. passive, low tech, um, no electricity, no moving parts. We like that. And then, um, the reason why we're in a subterranean greenhouse partially is when it comes out of the commercial kitchen, the dang code and plumbers want to put your sewer pipe three, you know, down in the earth already. So by the time it gets out here, which is right here, we're already this low below grade. So hence subterranean because these vessels need to be um, pretty much under that pipe is how that works. Yeah. Um, but hey, subterranean greenhouse is actually really good. And then when we get to finish it here, you see I'm just open to the elements. Um, but when we get to finish it, it'll start keeping it warm. And then there is a coil of tubing in here so we can heat it uh, eventually. And then in the summer, we were growing tomatoes in here. and. So subterranean greenhouse is a great thing to have in a cold climate such as this. Um, so we just got to tie in a little more to the uh, the thermal uh, yeah. stasis of the earth. You just dig down below frost line basically, and yeah. that helps regulate temperature and structures, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Great, Nick. Well, why don't we uh, head over to the kitchen and uh, show folks, uh, we'll light some gas and uh, show folks some of that beautiful... Uh, carpentry work you've done over there. Sounds good. So here we are in the commercial kitchen that you built, Nick, and uh, 
We've got the uh, stove partially plumbed up to the biodigester out there that we were just looking at. We've got this gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous uh, timber framing work uh, here. And then behind you is a straw bale wall, right? With it's really, you can see it's pretty thick. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how many inches thick that is, but uh, what is that, 10, 12 inches? 14 is 14. what we usually say on the bales. Yeah with a beautiful uh, diamond window and one of the things that's been really fun to watch evolve in this space nick is uh, a lot of the uh, value-added artisan uh, food uh, products that you've made uh, here in past years and others in the community have come to make and it's uh, just wonderful uh, hearing about all of the work you're doing at valley roots food hub uh, also and uh, working with all kinds of different farmers and growers here in the valley and uh, other food manufacturers and getting you got home delivery for individual households you've got commercial delivery for restaurants and retailers and all that and uh, I, I thought i'd just ask you a bit about um you know what's what's that look like what do you got going down there at the uh, food hub yeah well i let me, let's preface that buddy by <laughs> or let me back up a little bit uh, when we were doing our CSA here and stuff, of course, this was an old ranchacked uh, cabin that was pretty derelict upon our founding it. Um, and this section was all rotten, so we just pretty much tore it down. Then we had an outdoor kitchen for many years, and we'd do all the CSA boxes here. So it was kind of a natural evolution of just like, oh, well, let's just build a nice kitchen for CSA or baking, cooking, community lunch, dinners, all that type of stuff. So that was kind of the um, trajectory. Um, and then there was a point when I went and got a job working for um, a Colorado food company. Right. Source Local Foods. Yes, right. Yeah. yeah. With uh, yours truly, buddy. And uh, that got me in the like, Colorado local food system, developed a lot of relationships across the state. And it was at the time that uh, the San Luis Valley Local Food Coalition was starting a food hub here based out of Moscow, which is out in the valley. Um, you mentioned where the quinoa, North American quinoa, was essentially bred and all the genetic work and all the agricultural farming has uh, developed there. So that's where the food hub is based out of. But yeah, meat, dairy, produce all around the state now. Uh, we're going into our seventh year, um, wholesale and CSA. And CSA as far as the fresh produce box in the summer, as well as it's online grocery shopping. We have a great online portal on software, which we're uh, co-owners of now, actually, which is fun. Cool. Never saw that one coming. Right. But it's kind of yeah. like a tool that you needed um, yeah. in this day and age. It's, and it's so accessible and easy, and that's where everything's at. So, um, And now we have a walk-in cooler here, and so all our uh, CSA customers from Valley Roots, um, instead of us growing everything and doing everything here on this property, it's multi-farm, CSA and everything, and they still come here to this walk-in. And, and get, get there. So there's still that same kind of familiar community interface here. Yeah. Even though you're pulling produce from much farther afield, so to speak. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yep. Uh -huh. um, and then we've had, uh, you know, different people rent in the kitchen to do different things. And, you know, a lot of good Thanksgivings and Christmases and, you know, big yeah. times to cook. It's, it's been quiet. I, I've been doing some fermentations and some prototyping of some uh, different ferments yeah potatoes and carrots and other fun things yeah yeah excited. Uh, yeah we're excited to hear about that down the road yeah um 
But yeah, so we um, we took it down because it was all rotten. And then a buddy of mine from Montana, uh, shout out to Travis Roden, Rosenketter, he uh, turned out to be a timber framer. So he came down and um, timber framed this with us. Uh, it's a straw bale on this wall um, and timber frame structure, essentially. All Doug Fur from Colorado. I had a mill in those days, so we milled all this twice. You know, you milled it once and then just sticker it, stack it for a year or two. And then after everything's had a chance to dry and any twisting they're going to do, it does it. And then we put them on the mill again and mill them square. Um, and that just leads to really awesome timbers. Um, and Doug Fur is like the Cadillac of timber framing wood. And uh, Colorado is Why is that? It doesn't check? Or, or? Um, it has a lot of strength, tensile strength. And the grain is really tight. And it's relatively hard. Um, yeah. And it just lends to great structural wood. It's pretty. I'd like to uh, grab the camera in a, in a moment and yeah. uh, do some close-ups of some of this beautiful joinery work. And uh, let me just mention uh, to folks, if you want to get more information about Valley Roots Food Hub um, that Nick is managing, you can go to valleyrootsfoodhub.com. On uh, Facebook, it's Valley Roots Food Hub. Uh, same on Instagram, and we'll include these links in the show notes, of course. Um, if you'd like to learn more about what Nick is doing through his own organization, uh, Living Arts Systems, that's uh, livingartsystems.com. And then we've also got a link uh, in the uh, show notes we'll provide for you for Santa Fe Community College uh, for their biofuels program, and that's sfcc.edu slash program slash biofuels. Um, I want to take a quick moment too to give a shout out to all of the sponsors making this podcast series possible uh, through our Why on Earth uh, community network. And that includes Earth Coast Productions, the Lidge Family Foundation, Alpine Botanicals, Purium, Earth Hero, Vera Herbals, Growing Spaces, Soil Works, Earth Water Press, 1% for the Planet, Dr. Bronner's, and Wele Waters. Uh, of course, a huge shout out to all the folks in our ambassador network and all the folks who have joined our monthly giving program. If you haven't yet joined and you'd like to, you can join at any level uh, that works for you. Uh, just go to the whyonearth.org website, hit the click on the donate button, you'll get to the page where you can set that up. If you want to give at a $33 or greater per month, you'll get monthly shipments of the Wele Waters uh, biodynamically grown CBD hemp infused aromatherapy soaking salts uh, as, as part of our thank you for your support. And I want to also uh, be sure to mention that a lot of our sponsors and partners I just named uh, have discounts available to our audience and you can get to links and uh, get all the codes and so on on our partners and supporters page on the whyonearth.org website. So a huge thanks to everybody. And uh, Nick, I mean, you and I have been engaged in, in you know, conspiring together for well over two decades now and uh, doing most of our work here in Colorado. And it, uh, it, I think, only becomes more and more clear to us over time how important community and those community relationships are and those win-win regenerative uh, economic uh, connections are in our our work and our ability to provide uh, value and service in the world 
And uh, so it's, it's true that we've been able to work together in a lot of different capacities over the years. I guess beginning with having a band together yeah. back in the day, and that was a lot of fun. Um, but, you know, one, one of the things that I absolutely love about coming down and visiting you here in Crestone is just the way that the land just invites us to relax and restore and rejuvenate and you have done an amazing job of incorporating that same energy and feeling into these structures and i just i'm going to grab the camera so we can show folks some closer up uh features you've got here it's 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 such a joy to be inside of this building yeah cool and then um we can also show folks the the burner although we got to give our disclaimer that uh We'll be burning some propane gas because the biogas line is too cold at the moment to feed us in the kitchen. So uh, what do you want to show us first, buddy? Well, we can talk about that real quick. So, yeah, the, the digester is connected actually to these two burners. Um, and our thinking on this is like I, it is possible to, to power your own house with 100% your own gas. Uh, commercial kitchen, um, we thought, you know, has, has going to be periods where it's going to be maybe using more gas than we're producing. So anyway, these two burners are on biogas. Um, the, the rest are on propane. Um, and just because of my, the coldness at 8,000 feet in Colorado, um, the digesters are quieted up. So the gas production is not quite cranking. It cranks all summer. Um, so these, I'm out of gas at the minute is what I'm saying. <laughs> Should we uh, fire up some of the propane just to show folks the beautiful Yeah, I mean, it it's pretty much looks exact similar. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is beautiful. I love the arrangement. That, that real nice blue flame. flame. Yeah. Uh, Biogas is a little more purple, purple uh, but it's pretty much the same looking. And, and this is a re-jetted, you know, a nice commercial uh, range gives you an opportunity to get in there and rearrange things. Um, so that I open the jets up, and that's the difference between, uh, you know, that's the first question people always have is, well, can I run this on my propane appliances? And the answer is that propane jets are really small, and then the next jet down is natural gas. And then the next jet after that would be biogas. Um, so respectively, propane's 2,200 BTUs per cubic foot. Methane, natural gas, is uh, 1,000. And then biogas is usually about 650 BTUs per cubic foot. Um, so it's also just a correlation to the size of the jet. Um, but on a, on a range like this, it's really easy to get in there and mess around. Um, so yeah, uh, we milled all our own lumber, all these timbers, all this wood here, um, you know, recycled tile. This was a marble table that was in a dentist's office that our buddy Chris Miro uh, pulled out and he, he brought down and donated. Um, the walk-in coolers here where people pick up their boxes type of thing. It's, yeah, and it's kind of like a, a down low situation where people just know where to come and come get their stuff at their leisure um, basic all commercial stuff to get a, approved by the state for a commercial kitchen and um, tell us yeah. a bit about this woodwork here that, that I'm looking at yeah so um, basically there's no metal in any of it everything's pegged so it's a mortise and tenon. Tenon is the part that goes in, and the mortise is the the hole. And then you uh, you drill a hole, and we put uh, oak pegs through to hold it all together. Um, so it's all integral to itself. 
and um, load bearing. And then these are, uh, this is cool. This is called a through tenon. Um, and then it's got opposing pegs. So it, um, they pull, they pull uh, into each other, so to speak. So everything's real snug. Um, and then lime finished Adobe wall here. Lime's a little bit more impervious to water and splashes and such. Um, and then this house is a live or die by solar hot water. Um, so this is all solar hot water here. Uh, and then there's a big tank under the floor. So we have five collectors out on the roof. And then um, we're banking that heat in the tank and um, preheating the domestic water. And then the solar also hits the domestic uh, direct. That's normally how you do it is you, uh, you know, focus on your domestic water, which is the water you get out of your taps. And then solar never stops. Like you can't turn it off in the middle of the day. So uh, what we do is take it off the domestic tank, which is this, and then you got to put that heat somewhere. So we put it in the big tank in the ground. Um, but it works pretty good. You had a shower this morning and that was three day old uh, heat. Yeah, it was plenty warm. It's pretty cool, huh? It's refreshing. Um, so yeah, that's all yeah, that. That's great. Well, now, uh, for the, uh, for the finale of our episode, Nick, we're going to head over to your house and, uh, take a look at that. We'll, we'll get some shots outside and then go inside. How does that sound? Sounds, Sounds good. So Nick, here we are, uh, back outside and, uh, in the background is your beautiful home that you've been, uh, building over the course of about a decade. 15 years, buddy. 15 years. My gosh. Well, and it's got uh, so many beautiful features. We'll, we'll take you inside and show you around a little bit. Uh, I love the thermal and acoustic properties that come with working with straw bale too. Um, but before we jump inside, can you just kind of point out what we're looking at and, and what's going on? <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, again, this, this comes from living in teepees and then yurts and, um, well, what's next? And it's just like, well, all we need is water. And then the only way you can have water is if it doesn't freeze. And so then it's just, uh, that got us to a load bearing straw bale yurt pretty much, um, with a wraparound greenhouse on the bottom. And, uh, and again, it's got its antecedents back from living in canvas and circular structure. So it was just a natural segue in, in much regards. Um, however, circular is not the best passive solar. So, you know, I, I, have, a, I have a whole catalog of things I would do differently. And, and if I build another house, all the things, I mean, I have a long list and this house is still going. It's been a labor of love. It's been, um, you know, operating very thriftily and doing all our things, everything by herself. Um, and again, straw bale and adobe are real conducive to being creative. And adobe is so forgiving uh, and such a natural material. Um, and so, you know, our building materials are a truckload of straw bales and a couple dump truckloads of, we call it crusher fines, which is just a sifted road base, and then uh, clay. And that can get you. Get, uh, got us pretty far. And then lumber, a lot of the lumber we milled ourselves. This land had a lot of cottonwoods. So we milled, uh, has a lot of cottonwood lumber incorporated, which is a novelty in some regards. Um, and, uh, you know, on, on some level, there's the classical alchemy speaks to a lot of what we do. And so 
they have the salt, sulfur, and mercury, and they're this kind of the stages of ascension. You know, and the salt is of the earth and at the ground level, and uh, sulfur is sort of that next level of ascension, or it could be consciousness on the earth. And then the, the mercury is that cosmic sort of energy at the very top. So with the three tiers here of uh, ascension and, and the geometry, you know, speaking to the heavens and going up and stuff. Um, so the very top's a cupola, the total pain to build. And I just took down the scaffolding. I had circular scaffolding up there while I was working on it and just took it down. So it's been a long road and we're still, we're still doing stuff on it, but it's, it's been, um, aesthetically hitting the nail on the head. We've enjoyed the aesthetics of it very much. Um, and like I said, I have a whole catalog of other stuff as anyone, I think you build anything you you get ideas of what you want to do differently and such, but um, no one builds round because it's a pain <laughs> and it's more costly in materials and time. Um, so we were, again, young and ambitious uh, and it enabled us to persevere. You, you still are. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, great. Should we uh, kind of follow you in here? And, yeah, come and on in. Take a look. Um, the greenhouse is pretty well performing. Um, you know, we can get a jump on early starts and we have some perennials in there that hang tough through the winter. It can freeze if it gets real cold, but otherwise it's pretty good. This is a grape. This grapevine takes over and it's just unbelievable how productive they are. And it fruits out real well too. It's a white grape. The uh, entryway here works out good. This is my daughter, Isabella. Hey, Bella. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. What's and, and the dog. Hey, Bella. Bella, what, what is your favorite aspect of living in this beautiful house that your mom and dad built? My favorite aspect... Would be that it's so unique, and no one else has it. And I, when I tell people about it, they're really astounded. <laughs> yeah, that's fabulous. And you just graduated high school. Congratulations. Thank you. So you're off on to your own adventures now. Yes, I am. I'm excited. Yep. <laughs> Come on in. Are we uh, not worrying about shoes? What do you want to do, Nick? You're, You're fine. fine. Come on in. At least, At least it's not, not mud. mud. Yeah, it's true. Just a little bit of frozen water. So yeah, I think round, uh, it gives a certain sense of coziness. And like I said, with uh, teepee living, it's easy to clean, easy to heat. Um, and small square footage is always nice, you know. Yeah, it always stays so warm and cozy, even when it's quite cold out, which it is right now. Yeah. What What do we got going on uh, right over here with this with this stove? 
So this is our uh, Amish cook stove. Um, the, it's the main driver of the house as far as um, heating. Um, and it's great for cooking. It's got an oven. And then this particular one has a water coil. Uh, so if you want to come around the corner here. Um, and again, I, I, it goes back to building the energy portfolio for domestic household. And it's like, uh, there's no reason that, especially in Colorado, we can't get by on 100% passive solar. And again, circular is not the best, but uh, if, if one were to do it again, uh, passive solar is the way you heat your house. It's just like there's no other reason why you wouldn't. And then what's next is hot water. How do you heat your hot water? Solar, hot water. There's no other reason why you wouldn't. Um, and we have that here. Um, and then what happens when it's cloudy? Well, that's why we tie it into the wood stove. Um, so as we have a fire here, it's heating the water. And then this is a passive thermosiphon loop. So it uh, circulates itself, being that, you know, uh, warm water is lighter than cold water. So it, it creates a convective loop and a convective current. Um, and then this just augments the solar, which is here. Um, and this is a direct PV glycol. Uh, solar, which means that uh, it has an antifreeze in it so it doesn't freeze, and then it has a little tiny solar panel, a little 15 watt up on the roof, uh, and we do have a controller, so we're not actually, uh, there's never an opportunity that we're circulating cold fluid, even when the sun is shining. Um, so it always tells this pump to circulate directly off the PV panel when the solar panels are warmer than the tank. Um, and to, these two things together works great. And like I said, yeah, my family has been super awesome to understand that if it's been cloudy for a string, we might need to crank a fire for getting the hot bathtub and showers and stuff. Um, but otherwise, you know, we're not burning anything uh, besides wood. Uh, no, no petroleum or fossil to get hot water out of this situation, which is nice. So. Yeah, it's so and, beautiful. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, just and then as far as the portfolio, so that leaves one remaining thing, and that's cooking with gas, which is the biogas. So to me, these are like the the important elements as, as far as solar thermal, wood, and biogas, and together with passive solar, it's, it kind of checks all the boxes that we need to homestead and to uh, build sustainable um, living structures for us. So. This is a fig that does fruit. We just lopped those off this morning. Yeah, it's beautiful, all these uh, plants you have in the, the window. And this is south facing, isn't it? Yeah. Where I'm looking here, I, with all the light coming in behind your little backlit, but I just wanna show that you got all those beautiful plants in the window. And then you can kind of see out that uh, after the first pane of glass, you get into the wraparound greenhouse so there's a whole nother uh bank of plants living out there as well yeah and what about all of this beautiful uh cabinetry work nick yeah this is uh juniper rocky mountain juniper from the forest around here and uh when i had my mill um we would mill everything so you know juniper lumber is not necessarily a thing cedar lumber is more of a thing but yeah juniper just has astounding colors between the the dark heartwood and the lighter sapwood. Um, so again, we're, we had the for, fortunate opportunity to be able to mill stuff, stack it, 
for years, let it really cure out well, and then go to do the final carpentry stuff, and then you get really nice lumber that's stable and not moving around and stuff. Um, and the concrete countertop cast in place, they call it the poor man's marble, works pretty good. And did you do anything uh, to give it that, that beautiful coloring and kind of polish finish? It had a, a brown dye in it, uh-huh. and then uh, it still needs some sealing and some touching up. But you, you did some, some really cool things with the flooring here too, didn't you? Yeah, we were, um, you know, that's one thing where I think we might have, in the Crestone, the vernacular is adobe floors, and that has, of course, ancient, long history of just um, poured earthen floors. And while they are super beautiful, and we um, helped put in several around the community, they also just really take a wear, and you have to patch them, and they crack, and they have to take care of them over the years. So we departed, and we went straight concrete. And it's a cap. This is just a concrete cap. Um, so it's all, you know, tamped road base underneath it, um, and then just capped with the concrete. And it's just super bomber, durable, never have to mess with it. Um, this floor has been actually really good. Yeah, yeah, really, really beautiful. And, and can you maybe pull that door shut real quick, Nick, because it's one of my favorite features in your home uh what you did with this door i mean it makes me think of you know the shire and the hobbits and yeah reading reading tolkien and it is a it is a beautiful beautiful door and the way you got that arch i don't know can you see the diamond window on the other side boy it's let's see if we can get a closer up there yeah because um it's kind of the meridian of the scene here, back, back down where that kitchen is and that diamond window. It's on the same axis, and it comes all the way up through the garden, through this roundhouse, through this door, and then back out that diamond window. And the reason we, one of the reasons we did that, well, we started just observing, you know, when you working with these old structures, like what they had and how it was set up and why it was the way. They had a diamond shed back where we were in the kitchen. Um, it was where they brought in the plumbing in the 50s and we ended up tearing all that down and then that diamond shed we took away and stored it up the hill just to be like a horse tack shed and it's on the other side still on the access so we had a diamond shed down there so that old house all the way through out the diamond through the garden up through this house now through here and then out that diamond sh- uh, window to the diamond shed which was relocated so <laughs> It's, well, we it's have fun with it. Deep connection to place. And, you know, Nick, I know that's something you and I, when we were high school students, teenagers, we did a lot of backpacking and uh, obviously really valued our time in the woods and the wilderness. And you and I, we also got into poetry and philosophy and reading about different ways of being and connecting with place. And it seems to me that you've embodied that in your lifestyle uh, in, in a manner that most of our friends and peers haven't quite reached. And I'm just, I'm, I want to ask you about what, what does that mean for you to have such a connection with place? I mean, where you're, you're working with meridian lines throughout a landscape, tying different structures together that, you know, the, the common observer, casual observer may not even uh, think uh, to, to consider as a possibility. 
I don't know. I, I think, uh, you know, A, it's a blessing that we've had the opportunity. And I think it comes out of just studying cultures and different um, way different folks have done living throughout the, the years. Um, you know, and why did uh, Chimney Rock down in southwest Colorado, you know, the way they align that for the, um, you know, their structures based upon where the two stone pillars are on the solstice and the equinoxes and all that stuff was always influential to us, right? Um, so when, when we have a little chance to do, make our little um, geomancy type move, uh, it feels great to have the opportunity to do that type of stuff. And uh, yeah, maybe only for us that we know, but I don't know, maybe it gives you more meaning in the day-to-day when we're drudging away, digging or chipping or shoveling or doing uh, all the manual labor, just having a little bit of meaning behind there, perhaps. Yeah, it seems there's a deepening of relationship to the place. And, uh, you know, I I recall sometimes over the years when I'd give you a, a call on the phone and check in and say, Nick, how, how, how are things? And you might say something like, well, the water just started flowing. And so that's like this big moment in the seasonal cycle of the place. And, you know, for a lot of us living in our, our plumbed homes connected to municipal uh, utilities, you know, the water flows whenever we lift the handle on the uh, faucet on the sink, right? And uh, here you're, you're really deeply connected to a lot of these seasonal cycles, these these daily diurnal cycles and uh, the way you're working with the geometry of the landscape and the intentionality of the, the, uh, the uh, salt and sulfur and, and mercury and the way you built the structure. I mean, it's just tremendous. Yeah, it's been fun. Um, and again, we're really grateful to have the opportunity that the water has always been really important. And you know, the, there's a sad truth in that too is when we started here in 0405, um, this is a one cubic foot per second ditch that comes off the creek. And you know, we have to, it's about maybe a mile or so up. And then we got to work all the way down and we have to clean it out. You know, once the flow of the river, of the creek is up, then it'll start spilling into the ditch and then we have to clean the whole ditch all the way down. So that's what, like when it starts happening, it's a couple days of working with it real close to bring it down and then just the whole time it's flowing. Um, and then lady, you know, just the way the state of the world is, is um, it just doesn't flow all summer anymore. Um, you know, usually in by July, mid-July, it, it's petering out. Plus we have uh, very junior rights on it. So sometimes the Baca Wildlife Refuge has all the senior rights and they'll, they'll pull, pull a seniority on it and we have to shut it down or they shut us down. But um, yeah, working with the water is a lot of fun. And then during those times, it's like my dreams are permeated by these water dreams. And sometimes it's that the house is getting flooded. <laughs> wow. Well, in but, some, of the, some of the thinking I know over the years was a, a sense of preparedness, right? There, I know we shared, even as early as our teenage years, a sense that, wow, some of these systems, these global supply chains, these massive... Uh, utility structures, maybe they're not as, as, as resilient as folks might be assuming. And so there was this sense of, hey, how, how do we prepare? How do we, how do we create the foundation of resilience? And it's something you've 
done and demonstrated here over the years. And, and not only do we have these broader changing uh, trends regarding uh, rainfall and precipitation and temperatures, you know, affecting water flow cycles, uh, perhaps connected to our changing climate. But now we also have this COVID situation, right? And, and that has brought a lot of change into the world just in the last 10 months or so, whatever it's been uh, at the time of this recording. By the way, we're recording uh, uh, right around the uh, second week of December of 2020. And uh, here you are prepared for that, those kinds of eventualities. And I'm wondering, do you find more folks out there reaching out saying, hey, can we get involved? What, what can we be doing? Is there a sense, do you think, that more and more people are perhaps reconsidering uh, how, how we might uh, think about these fundamental aspects of our lives? Yeah, I think it's certainly there. Um, and, you know, since March of this year, God, it's, the world has really changed. And there's two sort of hemispheres for me there. And one is the you know, renewable energy and homesteading and land-based stuff. And the other one is just local supply chain food distribution. And so our business, we've tripled in action since March. Um, and in a lot of ways, it's been great for the local food system. And we've strengthened our, all our relationships and we've strengthened our team as far as like internal operations. Um, and it's a great time to be a small farmer um, because there is a supply chain to plug into. Um, so I think all that has really found its place of importance and volume, you know, the critical mass. Um, you know, prior, honestly, prior till March, I was like, man, this is, it's tough. I feel like I'm force feeding local foods. I feel like, why do I have to compete and push and, um, you know, prostrate myself out with local foods when people really want the cheapness and the convenience of U.S. foods um, at their doorstep three to four days a week. That's one of the big uh, delivery uh, yeah. distribution companies out there, U.S. Foods. Yeah. Um, so it was frustrating. Um, and I don't, that necessarily hasn't gone away, but what's come more to light is just folks at home. People don't, are not leaving their homes. So we say, yeah, we'll bring you uh, products from 65 producers to your doorstep. It's like a slam dunk, and it's a, it's a really good thing. Um, so for us, you know, the biggest challenge after that is running truck fleet and all that type of stuff. Um, being that we're in a rural area, San Luis Valley, 65,000 people, um, we really need the population centers of Denver, Springs, Pueblo, um, and then over in the Durango area. We really need those markets to sustain, you know, our production base. And we have great production, you know, back to the potatoes and quinoa and carrots and mushrooms and um, we have really good production. And a lot of the stuff that people were uh, concerned about is like, well, what about the production and what's happening and how, are you, how is it? And they're like, well, we're pretty good. We're not experiencing that except the meat. Meat processors have been definitely hit hard. And that climate has totally changed as far as a lot of our normal butchers that we would go do our yak, beef, bison, lamb. Um, they dropped out of doing USDA. Because USDA is what you know a food distributor needs to buy and sell food, and um, it's pretty much just that stamp of That's, USDA yeah, the, the inspection, inspection certification. Inspection, is, yep. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't mean that you can't um, you know have private ranchers that say, "Hey, or just process my cow," 
And so that's what the butchers have been doing. And they're booked out way out into 2021 and 2022 of just local people that just want their animals processed and they don't care about USDA. So that market's been pinched a little bit and the supply chain's been a little bit disrupted, even on our local small scale level. Um, however, it's still working. New producers are coming out of the woodwork and, you know, nature abhors the vacuum. So other things are filling in and, you know, we're really all curious to see, you know, what, what is going to spring up from this transition time, um, you know, and hopefully the local food thing will just keep up and keep on because it's, it's really important and a lot of other things too. And then on the other hemisphere of the homesteading and just like self-sufficiency and, you know, land-based community and building and, and just, you know, living out, living the dream on the land. Um, I'm, I'm somewhat removed out of that just because we've been so busy doing the, the food business, but I think it's there and I think people are real interested and, and need tools. And man, if it, it, to me, it's, it's getting more simple. <laughs> As far as like, well, here it's, it's these things and put these things in order. And, um, you know, it's not rocket science per se. Um, but it takes, um, it takes time, willingness, and probably setting down the phone and picking up a shovel and, you know, pulling up the sleeves. And, you know, I, we have this uh, Crestone Energy Fair has been going on for 30 some years. We just had our thing, and the, the subject of free energy came up, and it's always one that has um, inspired me because, you know, like, what is more free than the sun, and what is more free than falling water and blowing wind and things like that, and people are looking for something else than what we have, and it might not be the super high-tech newest and latest, um, but it's so there, and it's so accessible, and it's not that far away to implement and get into production. Um, and the free energy thing also implies that we're not going to have to work for it. <laughs> and, you know, that's a big misnomer, I think. So, um, I think we do have to work for it, yeah. even though it is cosmically free, right? Nick, I, I want to thank you for, uh, opening up your home, uh, to share this with us and, uh, share, uh, what you've been creating here over the last many years. And, I am, am so excited to realize in, a, in a, an even newer way uh, than I had previously that this type of rootedness and this lifestyle of, of homesteading and working in the local food system is probably one of the deep important threads of helping to transition into a much more sustainable and regenerative and stewardship oriented culture in our near future. And so I'm just excited that uh, we got to get this episode recorded together, my friend. And I wanna mention a quote by Einstein that you shared with me a couple weeks back. Uh, something about uh, not being able to solve problems at the same uh, levels of consciousness that we created them. And uh, it seems that we need some new ways of doing things in our culture and that you're onto something here. Uh, and so I just wanted to, before we sign off, uh, thank you and invite you if there's anything else you'd like to share with our Why on Earth community audience uh, before signing off for today. And I think we may be seeing some more collaborations down the road, by the way. Um, would love to hear what you have to say. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, well, 
of course, you and I co-conspirated a lot of this stuff. Yeah. And um, you've been with me the whole way. And I really appreciate that. And even with the local food system stuff, I wouldn't be in it if it wasn't for you. And uh, it's I'm a blessing sorry. and a curse. You should say something. <laughs> I'm sorry. And you're welcome. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's true. Um, so in a way, it's been a huge distraction, but also a great blessing. <laughs> Like so many worthwhile endeavors. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm grateful. And it's, yeah, it's, been, it's, it's about relationships. And the cool thing that happened with this food hub, um, I'm going to address that in a couple of ways, is our board came together. And these are the founders of the organic movement, you know, the old time organic farmers of the valley. And they really wanted a, a gold standard. And it wasn't necessarily certified organic. They wanted a regenerative soil farming, you know, food that was grown in living soil. So we coined the RSF, Regenerative Soil Farmer, um, sort of designation. And so all in our listing, you know, anybody that's doing that, growing food in living soils or building soils, and that's everyone from vegetables to, a, you know, a cattle rancher, um, they get that RSF designation. So that's been fun. And I think going on with what you're saying there is just recognizing that this regenerative soil is really where so much of uh, misplaced, long due, importance it needs to be invested in and it's it's slowly coming up i mean in the conversations and the work you're doing and it's definitely becoming more highlighted so that's exciting to see and it's been a privilege to work around people doing great work in that way and and to be helping by just you know providing a market for their products and stuff um and there's so much more work to do uh i think COVID kind of was a distraction for a little bit as far as the, you know, climate um, scenario and like what we need to be doing on carbon neutral activities. And I think um, it's good to see that it's still like even with my daughter's uh, community, it's still up and they're still working on it. And it's very much in, of importance. And I think that's a lot of um, my interest, you know, and we always knew again, back to like something was just not right and we knew that something had to change and there was something and, and a lot of it was like oh man we're gonna run out of oil it's gonna be like mad max and that's a lot of it's fueled a lot of my thinking and i never saw a biological or a virus laden sort of pandemic to drive home important lessons such as local food um, so that was kind of one we didn't necessarily see coming in that way but it's been a blessing as far as it's really improved the importance of local food and the climate and the carbon neutrality and i think that stuff is coming out of this new crop of sort of consciousness um and it's the next big thing we need to be working on and and i think you know some of the things that we've tried to do here is just yeah it only makes sense and it's only really impactful in in at scale and at in quantity you know, so um, you feel free to reach out in your circles to see, like, how can we build settlements and communities that, you know, are carbon neutral, if not carbon negative, for the next round of uh, Earth habitation. And, you know, we might travel to Mars, but it doesn't mean we should not keep working for this planet. Indeed, yeah. In fact, and there are a lot of... Uh global experts really taking uh, some of the folks to task on this whole Mars uh, fantasy fetish, they would say. 
and that we've got so much work to do right here on earth. And if we even might consider it a possibility to terraform some other body in this solar system, wouldn't logic require us to get really good at it here yeah. uh, first yeah. and in a much easier set much of easier. conditions um, where we're not being bombarded by solar radiation because of our magnetosphere and atmosphere, etc. Um, so yeah, it's, it seems to me, Nick, that Oddly enough, we tuned into this fairly early in our lives. And now as more and more people in the quote unquote mainstream are tuning into this, that folks like you are uh, in a position to shine even more brightly as leaders. And so it's my hope and it's a big part of why we're doing the work we're doing at the Wine Earth community that we can create more videos with you guys and do more to help share the knowledge and expertise you've generated in the last two, two and a half decades uh, and, and get that out to a lot more folks out there. And, and if we go about it in, in a good way, we'll probably have some fun doing it too. Yeah. So, hey, that, that wouldn't be bad either. Sounds good. Yeah. Well, thank you, my friend. It's great visiting with you. Love you, brother. <laughs> that may be the first hug, hug on, on a, a podcast, podcast episode. episode. Really? That's good. Well, well, you and I are the ones to do it. That's right. All right. Well, thanks, Nick. Thank you. Take care, everybody. The Why on Earth Community Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series is hosted by Aaron William Perry, author, thought leader, and executive consultant. The podcast and video recordings are made possible by the generous support of people like you. To sign up as a daily, weekly, or monthly supporter, please visit whyonearth.org support. Support packages start at just $1 per month. The podcast series is also sponsored by several corporate and organization sponsors. You can get discounts on their products and services using the code WhyOnEarth, all one word with a Y. These sponsors are listed on the whyonearth.org backslash support page. If you found this particular podcast episode especially insightful, informative, or inspiring, please pass it on and share it with a friend whom you think will also enjoy it. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your support. And thank you for being a part of the Why on Earth community.